Think of one thing that you have watched, listened to, or read over that time in, in the sort of media. It could be a program on television, it could be a concert on the radio, an enjoyable book, okay? Uh, just pick out one thing in your mind that you have watched, listened to, or read. Now think about, with that in mind, think about the response which that program or piece of media asked of you. Did it demand your rapt attention or merely your passing interest? Did it make you relaxed and comfortable or stirred and engaged? Did it make you laugh or think or cry? Is it something you applauded at the end or merely switched off? Did you want to tell others all about it or merely enjoy it on your own? And let me ask you this question as well. Did what you saw or listened to or read change your life? In other words, did it demand that you live your life differently at the end of having consumed that bit of media than it did before? Now, I'd be pretty surprised if a lot of us said, I want to watch something this week that changed my life. Because most things don't. It is very unusual for something we watch or listen to or read actually to change our lives. Inform, yes. Expand our knowledge, certainly. Entertain, very hopefully. But change our lives not often. We're not used to watching things or reading things or hearing things that really change us on the inside. But it's in that territory of not only listening to things but actually having our lives changed by them that we're in this morning as we look at this uh, very famous and familiar short passage from Luke's Gospel. Because today we're going to see that Jesus did not only produce a piece of media, i.e. some words, but he actually demanded a response. And it was a response that for his listeners, he wanted to be life-changing. And that's what we're looking at together this morning. Uh, this summer, we're doing a series called Jesus by the Sea. Picking up on stories from the Gospels, which include the sea in particular, or water in general. Uh, and this story is in the latter category. It's the most tenuous of all the, series, of the stories we're doing over the summer. It just involves water. Uh, and it's an account by Luke using eyewitness evidence of a story told by Jesus uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And as I say, it's a story that may be uh, familiar to many of us through a song that we sang as children, A House That Falls Flat. Uh, that was about as exciting as infant schools got in 1979, uh, in my experience. But um, I hope we're going to see today that if we place this story in its wider context, Jesus is doing something so much more than, uh, or so much more challenging than simply giving basic architectural advice or even moral teaching about doing things properly. I think we're going to see this morning that Jesus told this story because he did not expect to be applauded as a great teacher, but given a very different status altogether. So perhaps you take your Bibles, they're in the seats in front of you, and uh, turn with me to page 1035. And there's a batting order on a piece of cream paper in your new sheet. And you'll see that I'm suggesting we look at this passage under three headings. First of all, what Jesus is looking for, verse 46. Secondly, making the right response, verses 47 to 48. And thirdly, making the wrong response, verse 49. And, and this morning, I want to say there's an invitation for those of us who are seeking faith, actually to understand what it means to make that decision. And there's an encouragement also for those of us who are feeling buffeted by the storms to see where our hope is really to be found. So, 
In order to understand this little passage, we actually need to look at the context in which Jesus said it. And I want you to look across the page, back to verse 17, which forms the start of this section of the Gospel. It's on page 1034 in our Bibles, Luke, 7, uh, Luke chapter 6. Look at me at verse 17. This is the so-called Sermon on the Plain, okay, which is Luke's equivalent of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's been some effort to kind of harmonise the stories and kind of make them refer to the same events. In fact, if you go to Galilee today, north of Capernaum, the guides take you to a place where they say this sermon is held by tradition to have happened. And they show that from the bottom, it looks like a hill, and from the top, it looks like a, a plain. And they say, for you know, it's the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, um, QED. Uh, um, I have to say, such topological fancies are not strictly necessary in my mind. Uh, much more likely is the fact that Jesus used material more than once in his sermons as he went around Galilee. And this account accords a different occasion to the one narrated in Matthew. The thing I want to notice is who was there as Jesus was speaking. Look with me at verses 17 and 19. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. So, so therefore, what we notice, this is a very mixed crowd of people who have come to Jesus with very varied motives. They've come from many miles away. Jerusalem was three or four days walking. Some to hear Jesus' teaching, some to be healed. It sounds like quite an assembly, doesn't it? But what we've got to do, we mustn't characterize these people as kind of pious believers sitting very neatly at Jesus' feet saying, oh, please teach us, Lord. Some were there out of interest, some out of desperation, some out of just simply a desire to hear the latest thing because the voice didn't exist in those days. Nothing on telly. But there were disciples among the crowd. If you look with me at verse 20, looking at his disciples, Jesus said. Disciples refers to people who were consciously following Jesus by this stage. And so this teaching is, is, is kind of aimed for the disciples. But the key thing to notice is the rest of the crowd are still there. In other words, Jesus may be looking at his disciples, his kind of relatively small band of followers, but he's got this huge crowd who are actually listening to his teaching as well. And it seems to me very likely at the end of the sermon, Jesus turns to that crowd with the passage that we've got today. Now, what does Jesus teach about during the sermon? Well, if you just let your eyes skim over those couple of pages, you'll see that he touches on a range of issues, from blessings and woes that seem to go against the way the world works, blessed are the poor, woe to you who are rich, to loving our enemies, to seeing our own shortcomings rather than focusing on others, to examining our own hearts and the fruit that comes from them. It's pretty demanding teaching. I mean, loving your enemies is hard. It doesn't come naturally. Actually, looking at your own sin rather than enjoying others, I mean, that's hard as well. This is challenging teaching that Jesus is giving. And then in verse 46, this key word, this key phrase, this is how Jesus finishes his sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do as I say? What's going on here? Well, the key is that word Lord. The word Lord is a term not of respect, but submission. Let's just think about it. Rabbi, back then, was a term of respect. Sir was a term of respect. 
Master was a term of respect. Lord wasn't. Lord was a term of submission. Shall I tell you who else was Lord at that time? Caesar. Kaiser kurios in Greek. Caesar is Lord. Lord meant that somebody had authority and you had to obey them. So what Jesus is criticizing is people who call him Lord, but don't live with him as Lord. In other words, they say, Lord, Lord, they say you have authority over us. But they actually do exactly what they want. They don't follow Jesus' teaching about loving enemies or examining themselves. They live their own way. And what's very clear in this verse is what Jesus is looking for. He's looking, you see, not for spectators, but followers. He's not really interested in drawing large crowds who applaud him and call him Lord in some fit of ecstatic fancy, but rather people who will actually obey him. In other words, it seems abundantly clear that what Jesus came to do was not to teach or inform, but actually call and invite people to follow him. He wants people to call him Lord, yes, but above all, he wants people who will live with him as Lord. He's not interested in applause and nice words. He's not interested in sort of, we are not worthy. He's interested in people who will actually live with him as Lord and not just call him Lord. Now, we'll think about our response in a moment, but let's just notice for what this little verse does to our view of Jesus. Because it's so easy to line up Jesus with the great teachers and thinkers of the ages. Socrates, Plato, Buddha, Confucius, Marx. And there he is among the panoply of sages with his own insights to share across the generations. And we can take and pick and mix of his teaching in a way that works for us and on our own terms. But Jesus did not put himself in that bracket. He owned the title Lord. And he actually called people not just to listen to his teaching, but act to follow him and obey him. Jesus called people not just to listen, but to respond. The question is, what did that response look like? And that's why Jesus told this story, this powerful story of a man, two men building houses. Because he shows us, he says, what the right response looks like and what the wrong response looks like. First of all, look at the right response. Look at me at verse 47. I will show you what he is like, who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Notice those three stages. Comes to me, hears my words, puts them into practice. Now, this doesn't mean that this person is perfect. Jesus is not describing someone who does absolutely everything Jesus' way all the time. Rather, he is describing a heart response to Jesus that is not something about coming and hearing, but also obeying. In other words, Jesus is describing the person who comes to Jesus, who listens to Jesus, and then submits to him as Lord. He's describing the person who brings their own life to Jesus and says, here I am. I will follow you. Now, how is that person like 
the house described in verse 48, the house built on rock, and when the flood comes, the house could not be shaken. We know, by the way, how foundations work. We get the general point. But how does that house illustrate this response of submission that Jesus is asking for? I think the logic is this. When you submit to Jesus, when you give your life to him, when you call him Lord, you are actually no longer living on your own. You're effectively throwing your lot in with Jesus. You're saying, I'm in with you. And so your life is not just you on your own, but that's actually you and Jesus, with Jesus in charge. That's what it means to live with Jesus as Lord. It's not you on your own, it's Jesus and you. And so to put it in building terms, you're building on a foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the base for your life. And you'll know if you've been over in our church over the last few months through our sermon series on Ephesians, when we base our life on Christ, when we submit to him, all sorts of blessings flow. We know God's love for ourselves. We know God forgives all our sins. We know God's presence with us by the Holy Spirit. We know God's power to reconcile us to others. We know God's grace, the fact that all of this is for free. All of these are ours when we turn to Christ and submit to him as Lord. And the best thing is that all those things are safe forever. Because the, while the torrents may rage in our lives, those blessings in Christ, when we submit to him, when we put our life on him, all those blessings are completely secure forever. Come illness or hardship or suffering or anxiety or even death, all we are and have in Christ will still be there. His love, his forgiveness, his grace, his presence, his protection will always be there, will never be touched. I think it was these torrents that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote some famous words at the end of Romans 8. You don't need to turn to them. I'm going to read them for you because I think they describe the man who is basing his life on Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is doing is describing what it is for like for someone who has built their life on Christ. Nothing but nothing will now come between them and the one who has loved them. Now, as a pastor, I've had the privilege of seeing that at work in people's lives in our church. I've seen the torrents come, be they illness or financial challenges or impending death. But I've seen that because that person has thrown their lot in with Christ, if you like, they've in union with Christ, they're stuck to him, they're based on him, they're with him. All that matters to them really is safe. I'm not suggesting it's easy. They feel battered, just like the house is battered by the storms. But they come through intact because God will never let them go. They are super glued to Christ. 
and therefore all that they need, you need is safe. And I suppose, you see, what Jesus is trying to say to his audience is this. Submitting to me is good for you. It means you'll be safe, he says, whatever happens. And I guess that's quite an important message for us to hear today because we hear the language of submitting to Jesus as Lord and we instinctively get nervous because the sense that we need to be in charge of our own lives is so hardwired into us in our culture that we think Jesus being in charge is only going to spoil our fun. But that's not the case at all. When we submit to Jesus, we find ourselves with all the blessings I mentioned earlier and more than I could ever list. And even better, we find that those blessings are safe whatever the world throws at us. In other words, this is really odd to say this, but submitting to Jesus actually provides a stronger basis on which we can live our lives. Giving him the keys to our life actually means we are more secure rather than less. That's what Jesus is saying. When you do actually come to me and listen and put my words into practice, he says, you'll just be like that house. Because if you base your life on me, he says, I will be strong even whatever the storms are. That's the right response that Jesus has. It's an encouragement to those people in the audience that day Come to me, he said, and base your words on me and submit to me and all this will be yours. It's not a spoiling a life, but he says there's a warning as well, the wrong response. In verse 49, Jesus says, the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. What, what does this person get wrong? Well, look very carefully what they do. They come and they hear, but they do not submit. They remain spectators in the crowd and do not actually follow the way of Jesus in their own lives. They've heard all that Jesus asks of them, but they actually decide to live with themselves in charge. They may applaud Jesus, but they haven't submitted to him. They may be living with Jesus as advisor, but they're not living with him as Lord. So how are they like this poorly built house? Well, Jesus is saying is if they're really on their own, just like the house built on top of the ground, it may look great to the casual observer, but there is no depth to it. So when the torrent comes, they have nothing to fall back on, just their own resources. And those resources are nowhere near enough compared to what Jesus can offer. And so Jesus says this house collapses and its destruction is complete. And behind these words, I'm sure Jesus is talking about eternal realities. Just as the person who has submitted to Jesus is safe not only in this life, but through the judgment of death. So the person who has listened to Jesus but never submitted to him is on shaky ground. Not only in the torrents of this life, but in the final torrent of death. Let's be very clear. If we face death without having submitted to Christ, we cannot expect him to welcome us as someone who has. If we have lived without Christ in this life, we must expect to do so beyond death as well. 
You see, this second character, he seems to have everything going for him. He seems so free, so in charge. They can draw from whatever teaching he likes. He doesn't have to follow anybody. Surely that's the life that we aspire to. But Jesus says such a life is built on shaky ground. It is a life that isn't well placed to cope with the challenges of this life. And it's certainly not sufficient for the realities of life beyond death. Now that's hard for those of us, like myself, who have dear family and friends who have yet to come to the Jesus Christ as Lord. Or those who have died without a clear faith in Jesus. And I know that's hard. What I find the Bible does is not encourage me to speculate about others when I don't know a tenth as much about them as God does but rather focus on what I can control, which is my response to God. So that's where I want to end this morning. Before we do, let's just recap the ground we've covered. I hope we've seen the story, seen this morning, this story is not just a moral tale about doing a job properly, instead of doing half a job. It's actually a story that Jesus told in order to get his audience to make a response. Which path were they going to take? Were they going to take the path of coming to Jesus, listening to Jesus, and submitting to him as Lord? That might seem hard. But if they did this, Jesus said they're making a good choice. For if they based their life on Christ, they would know all his blessings of his love and his grace, both through the storms of this life and through the final torrent of death. He says, you're in a good place if you submit to me as Lord. Or would they take the path of coming to Jesus, listening to him, but ultimately going their own way? A way of living on their own without Jesus as Lord. Such a way may seem good in the short term, just as the house seemed attractive. But it will not last the storms of this life, nor the reality of death. It will not lead to a place of safety, but a place of risk. So I need to ask you this morning, which path have you chosen? And I want to speak to you this morning, particularly if you're somebody who has yet to make up their mind. Perhaps you've come to church over the years a number of times. Perhaps you like the teaching of Jesus, uh, and you appreciate getting to know other Christians. Perhaps you've always considered yourself a Christian ever since you were a child. Isn't putting C of E on the form just something everybody does? But you've never made a decision to submit your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. You've never said to Jesus, I want to live with you in charge. But that is what Jesus wants. And it's good for you. Because when you give to your life to Jesus, he gives you so much more in return. Now listen, Jesus told this story of the house to get us to make a response. If you have yet to make a response to Jesus Christ... And to ask him as your Lord, can I tell you how you do that? You say three things to God. Number one, you say sorry. Number two, you say thank you. Number three, you say please. You say sorry to God for living on your own as if your creator God had no interest in you. You say sorry for God for that. Second, you say thank you to God for sending Jesus Christ to die for your sins on that cross so that all you've done to reject God would be taken away from you and you could come back into relationship with him. And thirdly, you say, please, please, Jesus, come into my life as Lord and help me to live for you. That is what it is to become a Christian. It involves saying sorry, 
for the things we've done wrong. It involves saying thank you to God for sending Jesus and involves saying, please, come into my life and help me live with Jesus as Lord. Perhaps this morning, you actually think, I want to do that. Because I want to be that house that is built on rock, not the house that is built on sand. I'll pray about that in a moment. Let me just speak to those of you who are here who have made a decision to live with Jesus Christ as Lord. And I want to speak to you perhaps because you've done so for many years, but perhaps this morning you're in a place where you've forgotten why it was a good choice in the first place. Perhaps the storms of life have left you a bit battered. Perhaps familiarity has taken a shine off the blessings that Christ gives to all who turn to him. Perhaps you've just forgotten the rock and why it's good for you. Can I invite you to do what I did as I was preparing this sermon? And that's to look afresh at the picture of a house standing firm. It's a great picture. Because that's you. And that's me. Not because you and I are intrinsically strong, but because we are superglued to somebody who is. And the promises of God are secure whatever this world throws at us. His love, his grace, his presence, his power are rock solid beneath you, whatever this world throws at you. I found that when I'm living with uncertainty, that is a great thing to remember. That I am in Christ, and that picture of the house is who I am in him. So which path are we going to take? Are we going to make a, take the path this morning that says, for the first time, Jesus, I want to live with you as Lord. And if we have done that already, will we say, Jesus, thank you that you can be my rock. Let me pray.